Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver and to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit, where I, Jeff the Pundit, talk with my dear pal, Dr. Keith Witt, The Shrink, about all things integral. In this episode, Keith and I discuss a phenomenon that has gotten a lot of attention lately, more and more as culture evolves. And that is the role of trauma in our lives. Both the small T traumas, the daily indignities of life, and the large T traumas of accident, illness, violence. A couple of weeks ago, Keith sent me some notes on a book he's writing called Trauma to Transcendence, where he did what Dr. Keith does, which is to integrate the many streams of psychotherapeutic insight and processes that are designed to help people contact their trauma and use it actually to heal and to grow. As always with Dr. Keith, I learned so much even from his notes that I was eager to have this conversation and I am very happy to share it with you now. So here's Dr. Keith and me on Trauma to Transcendence. This thing on trauma, Keith, is terrific. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and it's really so fundamental too, right? Just yes. You you talk of it as memory. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and we all that 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 we have, you know, and and we're called on to sort of look at it and confront it and befriend it and change it. And anyway, I was um, quite taken by what you wrote. And oh, thank I, you. Yeah, well, you're welcome. And I didn't know you were working on a book called Trauma into Transcendence. But what yeah, a title. I've been working on it for a couple of years now. Uh, and I've been taking my time because new stuff keeps coming that is super cool to me. Yeah. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a, 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 um, a structure forming that gets more complete. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have the conversation. There, there is some great research on, on uh, spirituality and neuroscience, um, some great research on uh, neurofeedback that fit into the system. And, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit today. All right. So what you're calling this is an integral approach to treating trauma. Yeah. You're, you're writing a book, Trauma into Transcendence, which I think is not only a great title, but a great thesis. Mm-hmm. You know, just take this stuff and use it to transcend because that's where the juice is, mm -hmm. right? Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So let's just start by, why don't you give us a sort of a rundown of what you're talking about with an integral approach to treating trauma? Let me start by, by, by suggesting uh, um, a definition of trauma. Okay. Trauma is a form of memory. Okay. And I'm going to, and, and, and also resilience is a form of memory. And so I'm going to define trauma partly by contrasting it with resilience. Um, it's a normal form of memory. Humans have um, uh, superpowers of memory. We, we have everything that the other animals have around conditioning and memory. And then we have, we have an order of magnitude more. And trauma is a form of memory. And it's a memory where something distressing happens, either once or it happens a, 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 a series of times. And our nervous system responds with a solution to that problem. Usually it starts when we're very young. Um, and then the next time a, a, a similar problem appears in some fashion, is cued, is triggered, our nervous system provides that, that old solution. Now, say the solution when you were three years old, when you were frustrated, was to throw a temper tantrum until somebody gave you what you wanted, okay? All right, not a bad solution for a three-year-old if, if he can manipulate the people around him to give him what he wants by, by raising his level of emotional density. And that's, there's, that's not a conscious decision for a three-year-old, that's a, that's a nervous system creating an adaptive response. And so, you know, 30 years later, if that, if that, solution has not been integrated into a more sophisticated solution, he gets frustrated and starts throwing a temper tantrum. And that's a form of trauma memory. Normal development has a bazillion of these things. Okay. Now, 
And what, what, what characterizes uh, a trauma memory as opposed to resilience, which I'm talking about in a second, is that we don't, we, we don't adequately go to the next level of solution. Somehow that developmental process is blocked. Uh, that kid does not learn when he gets angry to, to regulate the anger and then to ask assertively for what he wants and then tolerate frustration. He doesn't learn that next level of problem solving. Um, or the next level even after that, which is asking for, for some kind of guidance and help and feedback if he's having some kind of reaction and then receiving that in a way that helps him be wiser, okay? That, 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 that sequence is stopped in some fashion. Um, yeah. you, often it's cultural. And, and, uh, and American culture produces traumatic responses. Uh, you know, the way an orange grove produces oranges. You know, there's a lot of systemic problems in America around, around this that's reflected in, in, the, in the escalating rates of anxiety and depression in young people. The 14 to 24-year-olds are, are the least happy 14 to 24-year-old cohort that, we, that we've ever measured in right. this country. Okay, so that's trauma. It just, it, it gets worse. And as it gets worse... Well, wait, Keith, before, okay, if you're talking about trauma as being just the general memory that we human beings are somehow blessed and cursed with, uh -huh. um, then sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, mm -hmm. and we typically think of trauma as being the part that's the bad, or the unwanted, or the painful. So, that's right. I mean, how would you describe that, or how do you, what are we talking we, about here? Well, it's, it's how we process it. If you adequately process trauma, when it gets triggered again, you have a better response. You have a wiser response, you have a more effective response. That's turning, now what that is, when you adequately process it and you have a better response, that's what resilience is. Resilience mm -hmm. is, we go in a difficult situation, initially it's hard, we struggle with it, we make a little progress, we learn something, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, and the next time a similar thing happens, we're a little bit more effective. That's mm -hmm. resilience. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and then it requires more and more distress to get us to be upset in that situation. All right. Okay, trauma is the, is the opposite. Okay, we, that's where we get arrested at get certain arrested. stages, and we just never go beyond it into these new stages of problem solving, basically. Exactly. And, and then what we do is we just try to avoid triggers, which, which is one of the reasons this whole trigger thing is such a big deal to me. We try to avoid triggers, but as we try to avoid them, it requires less and less of a trigger to have more and more of a distress response. Oof. That's called sensitization. Yeah. And sensitization is at the root of trauma programming. And, and this is normal development so far, okay? This is, everybody has to go through this. You can have the perfect parents and the perfect cultural context, and you're gonna have these things being programmed, and eventually how you manage the stimulations, particularly if you're, be, if you're beginning to get sensitized rather than resilient, it requires conscious attention to where you're getting sensitized to turn it into resilience, which is trauma into transcendence. Now there's also another, so it's a continuum. Over here on one side, we have normal development and that's trauma learning. And if, if it doesn't turn into resilience, it's our responsibility to turn it into resilience at some point when we become able to be responsible for that. Okay, would, would you say it's as simple, am I oversimplifying here to say that every experience can be processed one way or the other or some yeah. combination of the two? Absolutely. Okay. Uh -huh. the, the traumatic pull would be that I'm not getting anywhere, I'm regressing, it, it's getting me stuck. Uh -huh. And the other pull being that I use it to learn and adapt and move forward and become wiser. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we want to do. That's, we want to take all our experiences and turn them into love and wisdom. And, and the more we work on ourselves, the more we're able to do it. Cool. Now, there's, there, are, there are another class of traumatic events above and beyond normal development. Those are what uh, uh, Francine Shapiro developed, EMDR, you know, rapid eye movement. Yeah. I do like this because when I do rapid eye movement, I use my fingers and have people watch my fingers go back. Okay, um, she calls them small T traumas and big T traumas. Small T traumas are, say you were in a school where the standard around boys was to humiliate other boys. 
Okay, that repetitive humiliation then after a while has an effect on you. It makes you, you know, feel anxious when you're around other men, for instance. Or say you have a parent who never compliments you. So you feel like you're not good enough. That lack of, so that, that actually is a traumatic event. That then, you know, you begin to think when you're 15 or 16, somebody looks at you like that, they go, oh, I'm not good enough for them. Because there's a part of you that, that had interpreted that, that, that lack of, of validation as I'm not good enough. And that interpretation actually was a solution in that now I have an explanation for the reason that yeah. I'm not validated. Okay, I, I understand. And I'm not good enough. Those are small T traumas. Big T traumas are assaults, rapes, molests, physical abuse, uh, emotional or physical neglect. Um, it's particularly damaging when it's childhood developmental trauma, which is when somebody in the family is doing one of these things. Uh, uh, that actually causes brain damage. Uh, and sometimes you, when you do the first stage of trauma work, you need to literally engage in processes that help people's brains heal. Uh, neurofeedback is one example of those. There's, there's other ones that I think have that effect, mm. but I haven't seen data yet on from from uh mri studies functional mri studies uh that demonstrate that and i have seen um uh data from neurofeedback showing how the brain areas that get shut down by repetitive trauma start lighting up again when yeah. you do neurofeedback well you, you talk about the what is it emdr the moving the eyes yes. okay mm -hmm. does that work yes as a matter of fact it works. I mean, is that what we're talking about here? Is that would be sort of a rewiring or at least a firmware software kind of approach to brain damage, if you will? Yeah, yeah. Now, or not? It, it is. It, okay. it, it, it is. And one of the ways that works. Uh, well, so we're going to talk. So let's talk about the stages of treatment now. Let's, you know, let's okay. dive into it. All right, cool, cool, okay. cool. Okay. The, the, I do want to talk about how this culture is creating traumatized people just for a moment, okay? Okay. Okay. Okay, the green influence on this culture has been mostly pretty great, in my opinion. I mean, people care more, people know about interiors, people know about the unconscious, all that kind of stuff. Kids are treated respectfully, but there's a problem. Child-centered parenting tends to empower kids, but not appropriately frustrate them so that they learn after. <laughs> they and should so, bring them to me for that. They, yes. Parents. Bring, bring, we should all, they will, they will line I'll up. appropriately frustrate them. They, they will line up from your house to Denver. <laughs> and one after another, they can come in and Jeff can. Oh know. my goodness. Okay. Yes. Uh, and so what happens when, when where parents are trying to do, they're trying to protect their children from all pain. And the message to the kid is, if there's a problem, if you're feeling pain, it's because somebody else isn't protecting you adequately. And so the message to the kid is if you're in any kind of discomfort, just kind of raise hell in some fashion or indicate it, and then it's somebody else's responsibility to regulate you. Um, wow. So let's, well, let's fast forward to trigger-free zones in universities. Okay? okay. There's this subtle thing of if I get triggered, it's your responsibility for triggering me. And, you know, the solution is you need to be punished or excluded or ghosted or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. That's not what leads to robust interpersonal and intrapersonal development. Yeah. If I get triggered, it's my job to regulate myself into the present moment and then deal effectively with whatever's going on. Maybe somebody just made a mistake. Maybe mm -hmm. I can say, hey, well, don't do that anymore. And they go, fine, I won't do that anymore. Um, but instead, I've been sensitized. I go into a traumatic reaction. I go, now what I have to do is somehow give you a hard time until you regulate me by doing something, by making amends, by being ashamed by something. Yeah. And you know, what that's doing with adults, particularly in the absence, with young adults, in the absence of having a spiritual center for late adolescence, which is, is very necessary. We're genetically programmed to want to have a spiritual orientation between 18 and 22. The, the biological drive for that doubles in intensity Oh, in, yeah, yeah. Really? It's a biological drive. It's a biological drive. We are wired to want to have a spiritually awakened brain. There are four areas associated with this. 
And this is, you know, you really love this in, in my email. When you activate these areas, and you can activate them by serving another person, you can activate them by imagining the people that you love and asking them, do you love me, and having them say it. You, you can activate it by sharing a, a ceremony with another person. When you do that, four things happen in your brain. The default mode goes down, and so you're in the present moment. The part of your brain in the parietal level that makes you separate from other, feel separate from other people starts down-regulating and flickering. So you're beginning to feel separate but also unified. Um, the top-down um, uh, dorsal processing center of your brain that kind of solves problems in a linear fashion gets deactivated and the bottom up ventral processing system where you're following more for, from your intuition, that gets, that gets um, more activated. Um, and when all those things happen, you're feeling a subjective sense of spiritual connectedness and, and also a, a hunger to share it with somebody else. Yeah. So we are biologically wired to want to feel that, that to want to have those circuits activated and we're wired to want to share it with other people. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and you're saying that comes online uniquely or at age 18 plus. Yeah. It's, it's always there, but it, the biological urgency of it doubles as in intensity okay. between the ages of 17 and 22. Um, apparently what, what we're wired to do at, at that particular point is intensely feel connected to the other world and to share that connection with other people. When people do that, they're 80% less likely to get depressed. Um, they're 65% less likely to commit suicide. Um, and really interesting, and this is a great, great um, uh, factor in, in uh, Lisa Miller's studies. When she measured people who had a spiritual orientation, they, they, they really did feel this on a regular basis. On one hand, they were two and a half more times more likely to have been depressed or had an emotional distressing experience in the last 10 years, but they were only half as likely to have depression going further. So apparently, the capacity for depression and anxiety is also a capacity to have deeper sense of spirituality yeah. that the, the, the similar circuits and that when we activate those circuits we are protected we become more resilient yeah and it and for me whenever i'm working with adolescents a central part of it is is i want to help them find something that activates those circuits and have them practice that and share it with other people um, and that makes them more resilient that makes them less likely to be traumatized if they run into a small T or a big T trauma. All right, so you're talking about how the culture um, really thwarts this healthier development, and, mm -hmm. uh, and so we have a uniquely depressed younger generation. And um, there's a couple things that I would offer. One is, um, the upside of sensitization, and you have this, uh -huh. you know, this, this yeah, yeah. dichotomy between sensitization and resilience. Mm -hmm. Part of what green is doing, of course, is it's, you know, bring, calling forth the sensitive self, mm -hmm. the self that wants to recognize all the victims, all the marginalized people, all the marginalized parts of yourself. It's depressing. That's I true. mean, it's evolutionarily fruitful. But uh, and I would just I would just want to recognize both those things because even microaggressions, these kinds of things, um, do they're sort of you know easily parodied, but they're also the fruits of a greater sensitivity to each of us being this thing. And let me just go back to earlier in in uh, in your when you were talking about um, that human beings. God gifted this amazing inner world. Uh, why, Keith? Why did that happen? Well, it, we did. I mean, I mean, why know, we did we learn how to do algebra before we ever needed to do algebra? I mean, what's up with this brain just arising out of nothing? You know, when we did our the talk on dreams, you know, five years ago, three years ago, 
I, I remember I said, you know, I think that the universe dream came into existence with the Big Bang and has been waking up to itself ever since. Yeah. And part of evolution is the universe dream waking up to itself. And here we are at the forefront. Yeah. yeah. That there's a hunger, there's a hunger for greater complexity that, that it, through in consciousness turns into more depth of consciousness, more compassion. Yeah. I think it, and also I want to make a point. There's a necessary stage of existential, of existential despair that happens in adolescence where you really discover that previous idealizations don't work. I remember it vividly. I, I, I do have too. The, I have the poems that I wrote as a teenager that are very bleak. Yes. Poems. yes. Now, if, if, that's, if we, 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 we enter that stage, take it on and go to the next stage, the next stage after that is, all right, I'm hungering for something. What am I hungering for? If I can find that awakened brain experience and share it with another person, that state yields intuition and guidance. And I do feel loved, held, guided, and never alone. Now, that what that does is it leads me into the next step of my own purpose in my life. Yeah. And those of us that were lucky enough to go, go into that crucible and not fall for the easy answer of I'm going to get drunk and it feels really spiritually charged, but tomorrow morning I'm hungover, or I'm going to be compulsive in some fashion, you know, have sex with a whole bunch of people, and that gives me a subjective sense of transcendence, but it doesn't really. If you don't fall into those traps and you let yourself go to that next step, then that sensitivity isn't just sensitivity to your own emotions. It's sensitivity to the deeper voices of soul yes. and spirit. Yes, that and that solves the problem that, you know, again, is sort of intercultural, is that when you, lose, when you enter modernity and lose your religion, that is, um, you, you know, you do feel alone. I mean, yeah. what's the point of this? Here we are floating on this rock through space. And so it's thus the meaning crisis. And yet we can't go back to that mythic God and understanding that we had before. You can't uncook an egg, you know? You, and you so know, we have to have it. We go forward into something like what you're just talking about. This soul of the cosmos waking up to itself, you know, the, yes, yes, there's a religion in there somewhere. You know, when Ken talks about spirit in the first second and third person when he got to the second person i found god again yes and the way that i found god again was i realized that that people intuitively feel that spiritual interface and what we do is we project ourselves onto it and that's where all the gods come from um and so we enter modernity and we go oh those are all bullshit no they're not no, they're, they're not. They're metaphors for, for a real thing that exists, yes. which is a spiritual, it's a spiritual um, um, fluid that generates us and has always generated us yes. and always will. And that if we can feel that beyond those figures and just yes. use the figures themselves as, as, as thresholds into yes. something deeper, God in the second person returns. Yes. Um, and then we can see God in second person. It's kind of like... You know, I got a God in second person hit just because I knew it was a part of the map that had to be filled in. You know what I mean? That's an integral like, understanding right exactly. there. Exactly. So, um, you know, what is, what's the personal other? Yeah. What's the one who sees and loves me that I can actually see and love? That was like a really profound question. And I kind of had an answer. And it's God, you know, it's, it's whatever. It's kind of fuzzy. It's not like the mythic, it is, it's informed by the mythic God. I think actually, as I continue to make progress, I'll actually in some ways rehabilitate the mythic God in a so. liberated way. But I'm in no hurry. It's fine. I feel seen and loved. That's good enough right now. You know what I mean? You know, I feel that through all the people that I know love me, you included. Yeah. And I feel all of that together is very personal. You know, that's a very, that's a very personal, I love Keith, yeah. that exists in the world. That's a field. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's, to me, that's God in the second person. It's very comforting. I feel, Absolutely. I feel uh, loved, held, I'm guided, and never alone. Yeah. 
And it's, it's a pretty great feeling. Love held, guided, and never alone. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah, that's it. That's, you know, that's what Lisa Miller, I, you know, I love her. She's one of those neuroscience people who kind of discovered God through neuroscience. And so when she talks, she's just so adorable. Uh -huh. I, mean, I listened to this interview with her, and I was just going, God, Lisa Miller, I love you. I love you. Listener. What's you know, and then, but she was doing the MRI research. She was putting up with her, her colleagues, teasing her because she was exploring spirituality and stuff. Uh -huh. But she persisted. It's pretty amazing. And what she wrote, what's her name again? Her name is Lisa Miller. She wrote a book called The Awakened Brain. Oh, the Awakened Brain. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And so all this stuff informs trauma treatment. Yes. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that trauma treatment tends to go through stages. You know, as psychotherapists, we're always working with multiple dimensions simultaneously. So from the very first moment somebody comes into a session to the last time that you see them, you're working on helping them have better relationships with other people. You're working on helping them have a more coherent sense of, the, of relationships with all the different parts of themselves. You're working at having them have a felt spirituality that, that is comforting to them and they can share with other people. Um, you're working on that stuff all the time. But if people come in with trauma, um, there's stages that you go through. And usually, here's how you, you, you progress through those stages. And, there's, and they're always happening at the same time, but there's generally an emphasis on one stage rather than another. And they don't have to happen in sequence, so they, they often do. The first stage of treating trauma is recognizing that something about the past is interfering with my relationship with the present moment. You know, um, my, my, my friend disapproves of something I did and I feel a wave of rage. Mm -hmm. And I go, now, that wave of rage, maybe I say something mean to my friend and we have an argument. And, and maybe that happens more, more, more than once. So I go to a therapist, and a the therapist says, say, I go to Keith. Keith goes, well, so that, it sounds like that wave of rage is not proportionate to what, what happened with your friend. No, it's not. Well, that sounds like memory. Sounds like trauma learning to me. You know, let's, let's kind of explore the archaeology of your, of, of, and the anthropology of your life and see when that wave of rage actually was a solution to something. Let's find it out together, okay? Now, this, this understanding that the past is intruding and I need to go back for, for being rooted in the present moment, but then having some kind of interest in, yeah, I used to rage when, you know, my older brother would beat me and I have to go crazy to get him to stop, say, okay? All right, oh, that's interesting. That's a good example. Yeah, that's a good example. So, so maybe so as but but we're not this person is not getting overwhelmed with rage because they're staying connected so that's called dual focus and dual focus is a central feature of pretty much every trauma treatment peter levine is somatic and treat, uh, uh, experiencing he'll have people feel the weak part of their body and a strong part of their body and pendulate back and forth that's a dual focus exercise i see emdr is this soothes you, activates your, activates your thalamus, and you can think about whatever the traumatic memory is without too much arousal, go back into it, and then your, your brain starts um, reintegrating, um, reconsolidating that memory, that dual focus. Great, yeah. Um, I'm particularly interested in the EMDR here. Um, okay. uh, and so moving your eyes back and forth it stops you from getting too contracted in any one sort of state? Yeah, or... well, okay. Here's what bilateral stimulation does. All right. Bilateral stimulation is soothing to the human nervous system. It is, isn't it? It is. You know, like, okay, yeah, you know, dancing, dancing yeah. bilateral stimulation, okay, whatever, you know. Um, being with another person, you know, and even as I do this, whoever's watching this, they're getting soothed, okay, bilateral stimulation. Now, what is, when you get soothed, it keeps you within what's called the window of tolerance. You're not too dissociated and shut down like with shame or something or, or terror. And you're not too jacked up like with rage or fear. You stay in that window of tolerance. And in that window of tolerance, you can, you can do things. 
you can relate, you can self-reflect, um, that kind of stuff. Another thing that, that what we suspect that though there's there's some intriguing studies. Um, if you uh, um, if you when you do this and someone relaxes, it activates the thalamus, which is the part of the brain that makes stories of our lives. If 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 this is a brain, okay, and these two fingernails are your eyes, mm -hmm. the thalamus is in the limbic area down here, okay? okay? And so when you have a memory in a state where you're, you're not too aroused or too shut down, yep. particularly connected to another person, it opens up that memory to be reconsolidated. Reconsolidated means we don't really remember events. We remember the last time we remembered an event. Okay, so if, so if every time you remember an event, you add a little bit of compassion, the next time you remember it, there's a little more compassion. And this is gradually how we digest events and make them, turn them from say stains on our personality. Oh, I'm so ashamed of myself because I got humiliated in class when I was telling jokes to the teacher, to um, transcendence, to I see that I had a questioning personality that was pushing against authority. Yeah. And, continually to get snapped by authority, but I knew there was something at that interface there about pushing at that interface where meaning happened. And so I kept doing it. Yeah. That, that came from remembering that and adding compassion until all of a sudden the memory changed into the meaning of the memory changed. Wow. Yeah. No, that's so good. You know, I've always, as a practitioner and student of Buddhism and all these religions and stuff, it's like, so which one is it? Do you want me to stop my mind? Do you want me to observe my mind? Do you want me to quiet my mind? Or do you want me to work with my mind and guide my mind? And, you know, uh, and it's both, of course. Of course. That's it, always this is that part where you actually work with your own mind to, you know, intentionally create compassion. I just love that. Exactly. You and know. so the first stage of working with trauma is one, recognizing that, it, that it's influencing us. Two, at the beginning to look at it with compassion, with a dual focus. Yeah. With somebody or, and then by ourselves, so that we can begin to tell the story of the trauma without getting lost in the trauma. So when we're, I just want to be clear that when we're talking about trauma here, we're talking about the small T traumas and the large T traumas, right? That's right. Exactly. And, you know, you talked about part of realizing that your anger is disproportionate and so forth. But sometimes it's not, you know, I think of friends I know whose loved one was murdered. Oh yeah. You know, well, I mean, yeah, but, but yet it's probably the same process, right? It's, it's the same process. Freud thought that if you could just tell the trauma story without getting upset, that resolved the trauma story. Sometimes that's true, but rarely is that true. And also, what we talked about earlier, sometimes your brain is so damaged that you actually have to do stuff to heal your brain. Neural feedback um, heals your brain. I think spiritual practice creates uh, circuits where your brain gets healed enough that you can begin to start this, this process. Um, therapeutic communities sometimes can uh, heal people's brains over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen data showing these, these areas being, being lit up by those things. But I've certainly seen a lot of epidemiological studies and clinical studies about people that clearly were, were shut down, but gradually woke up if they were in the right circumstance or they were working with the right person. Yeah. E EMDR and similar, there, there's, there are similar techniques to EMCR. One's called brain spotting. Um, there's a guy named uh, um, uh, Dan Wood who has a, a technique that's very similar. He doesn't do bilateral. He'll have you tell the story and watch your finger and he'll, he'll just move your focus of attention, changing your brain pattern. And if you watch the finger and tell the story, then that does a similar thing. There's a lot of different techniques. No, that, it, it actually makes sense. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. makes sense to me. And so the first stage of, of trauma is recognizing this intruding and then be able to have a dual focus so that you can understand it, remember it, talk about it without much distress. But that usually isn't enough to resolve it because traumas, tra trauma learning has meaning to us in our autobiographical narrative, in our story of ourself. And usually it's a negative meaning, you know, like the earlier one, you know, my dad never complimented. No, my, 
say, or say, say you had a critical parent. A lot of us, you and me, who were raised in the 50s and 60s, our parents were <laughs> from the Depression and World War II. Right. It was a militaristic consciousness. Yeah. And with kids, it was, I'm not going to compliment you. I'm going to just, you know, do your job and shut up. You know, yeah. just like that. And I'll All be right. happy to point out your flaws in the meantime. My flaws. Okay, so I'm not good enough. I'm, <laughs> I need to be perfect. You know, that's where all these injunctions come. Yeah. You know, existen you know existential shame. Let's say, so, so our autobiographical narrative, as we begin to resolve it, we need to be able to see, as we understand this, that our, our story is still being written. And it's a story that is expanding because we're wanting it to expand that we're someone who's wanting to grow, that wants to love better, that wants to be more virtuous and, and to be more healthy, and that these experiences that we had were painful but necessary steps in our own personal epic journey of our life. And so our autobiographical narrative, which is autobiographical narratives are, are tend to be focused in the right hemisphere. And we have autobiographical narratives of all the different aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. you know, us as friend, us as lover, us as, mm -hmm. as, as son, daughter, um, mm -hmm. us as sexual being, us as student, us as professional and so on. And they're always changing, okay? Unless they got arrested. And remember trauma arrests. And so as we work through the trauma, we open up those stories and those stories then develop and they become more life affirming, more transcendent stories. And then that a lot of good things happen when that, that happens. Our blood pressure goes down. It's easier to exercise. We have more self-esteem, uh, you know, we're more able to look at um, the mechanisms that we use to push trauma away, you know, drugs, alcohol, overeating, that kind of stuff and, and have a little bit more room to change that kind of stuff. And so changing that story often helps people feel more whole. But sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes it's not enough because we develop these habits of consciousness. Uh, one habit of consciousness that I had, this is one of my favorites, is when I, did when I do Tai Chi, um, particularly if I smoke marijuana and do Tai Chi, while I'm doing it, I will have a flash of some point in my life where I was ashamed. I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated with that. I've been, I've been playing with that for years now. Um, and so that was a, that's just a bad habit of Keith, under certain circumstances, going to a shame memory. Okay? And so as I began to learn this stuff, I went, okay, I want to change that habit. So when that habit happens, I've already processed the, the events, and I've always already readjusted my story. What I have now is a bad habit. And so I started cultivating a good habit. The good habit is when I'm doing Tai Chi, I'm also focusing on channeling energy and opening myself up for intuitive flashes because that's one of the times I like to work. So I direct my attention. When that trigger begins, I don't really go into the traumatic memory. I don't really adjust my life story. I just go, oh, that's a trigger. And now I'm focusing myself on, all right, on the present moment and on opening myself to whatever area I'm wanting an intuitive flash from. Right. We're creating a new habit of consciousness. And cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very, very popular, um, not really the best treatment for an awful lot of stuff, but the good cognitive behavioral therapists do what all good therapists do. They pull from many disciplines and they have the seminal understanding is to a large extent, we, all, we are what we think and we do. And one of the central treatments of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is exposure and response prevention. You know, they do that for OCD. You know, I have to knock on the door before I go through. I have to knock on the door before I go through. So what you do in exposure response prevention is I have to knock on the door. I'm not going to knock on the door. I'm going to open the door and go through. Okay. I feel the impulse to do the negative thing. and I do a positive thing instead. And then I go, yes, good job. Okay. All right. So you, you learn how to direct your attention from a, 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 a habitual traumatized state, which is weakened, but still there into a preferable state mm -hmm. and, you learn, and that becomes a habit of consciousness which goes back to what you said about buddhism and you know when you, you you listen to dan brown talk about buddhism it's not about cessation it's about training your brain to do what you want your brain to do <laughs> and there's 32 <laughs> steps in tibetan buddhism and they all involve concentration visualization white tara green tara you know and all this other stuff 
And it's a trained brain that goes where you want it to go, and it doesn't go where you don't want it to go. Yeah. And that's the third stage of trauma treatment. Okay. Um, Keith, does this work also when you're depressed or anxious? And, you know, how, what, what do you do there? It's not like you're unchoosing one behavior. It's just you're, there's, a, you're, there's a blank. Okay, so this is, this is uh, I, I love it that we're talking about depression and anxiety here. All right. Um, one of the reasons I love it is 10% of this country are taking antidepressants. And that's 22% of women between 35 and 55 are taking wow. these drugs. How come we have more people being, getting these drugs for depression than in the history of, of man? And we, and we have depression that's eight times bigger than it was two generations ago. You think if everybody's getting this treatment and if the treatment worked, we'd have a lot less depression. Well, actually, that's not the case. And that's not the case for, for a big variety of reasons. And one variety of reasons is, is this lack of emphasis on affect regulation, spiritual connectedness, and connecting with other people. Okay. This country does not help people do that adequately, though you see a lot of it in schools these days. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and now that parents are beginning to get hip, you can't just empower children. You also have to set boundaries and, and frustrate them, which is necessary. I think that there's going to be more, it's going to get better going forward. But right now, um, we have a very, very, very fragile younger generation. In fact, this woman, Lisa Miller, she went to the Pentagon, talked to the Joint Chiefs, and they had two million people in the army do her training. They call it the Spiritual Readiness Initiative. Where well, for heaven's sakes. Army, they were teaching them practices of generating this and sharing it with other guys in the army. Oh, for God's sakes. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. So we have all this depression and anxiety. We have a culture of kids if they feel bad, are supposed to somebody else is supposed to come make them feel better. Um, it, a, a psychological diagnosis used to be a mark of shame two generations ago, and now people really want their diagnosis. <laughs> I'm depressed. I'm bipolar. I think I'm borderline. You know, you hear that. You hear that a lot. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, and then then that whole relationship with anxiety and depression becomes another source of trauma you feel out of control your yeah. solutions aren't working you take that antidepressant and sometimes it, it increases You've ruined your life you know it's hopeless you're 21 years old right you know. everything sucks yeah and so uh, the idea that that what we need is self-awareness self-care self-responsibility and satisfying agency and communion and that that needs to be baked back into the culture. We need to borrow from tribal that does that really well, though tribes, as we all know, are super racist. They, they do it for the tribe and everybody else isn't a human being. And, you know, and, and Amber does it for the, the, the mythic membership. And, and the, the more fervent the, the, um, the group, the more people identify with it and feel supported by it. But then, as you told me one time, Amber always needs an enemy, okay? Yeah. You, know, you know, Orange, you feel really great when you're organizing people and go, coming up and creating something great, but then you feel like a loser. If, you see, at, at each, there's, there's the blind spot well, at, at every, at, at every yes. level. Well, but, it, one of the ways of looking at this is that, you know, every stage has a deep wound. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we lose religion at Orange. You know, we're we're cast into the hells of in traditional, and 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 um, and then what happens when you get to green is you become sensitive uh -huh. to all of it. In some ways, in many ways, to the good. Many oh, many ways to the good. Sensitive is good. Sensitized, yeah, is 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 a problem. Yeah, well, let's let's yet let those terms be the terms we use to describe the upside and downside of this basically new stage of development. That's exactly right. And when you when you can when you know the difference, I want to be sensitive but not sensitized. If I'm sensitized, I need to do the trauma work so yes. that I'm more resilient. That what that does is it's it's basically a threshold in the integral. 
what, once, once you start doing that, then you're spending more and more and more moments at teal altitudes. And when you can be at teal altitude, when you've been trauma threatened, when a, when a defensive state arises and you can maintain yourself at teal altitude on your, on your self line, your cognitive line, your interpersonal line, that at that particular point, you're, you're pretty stable and integral. Yeah. It's a pretty great thing, and which is one of the reasons I love psychotherapy. All psychotherapy therapists, whether they know it or not, they're really supporting people working their way up the spiral. Absolutely. Everybody. Yeah. Which we want to do. I mean, growth is built into each one of us and built into the spiral itself. It's just a, it's one of the fundamental forces of the cosmos. Which brings us to the fourth stage of working with trauma. A big problem that people had in the 20th century is they go, I want to get cured. The, the thing was, is uh, if I, the, the understanding was, if I did the right work, then I wouldn't have problems anymore. I wouldn't have defenses. I wouldn't argue with my wife anymore. I, wouldn't I get thought that for the, the first school. 50 years of my life, <laughs> you know, more or less. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too, Jeff. Yes. What's gone yeah. wrong? What's gone wrong? And, you know, so as we develop the witness, the compassionate self-awareness, as we do this, Every once in a while, there's some kind of problem shows up. And if we can't resolve it, often we need to go back to the first level. Maybe there's something that just happened that, that is, is uh, you, my mom's having a difficult time and she was very, very difficult when I was young and to me and my brother. And so my older brother and I were talking and for the first time ever, he's 73. He started telling me about some of the traumatic events he had with her when he was younger, hmm. it just melted my heart to hear about it. Um, you know, he's a Trump Republican, but an adorable one, you know, as some people yep. are adorable. Oh, sweet. And so what this did with this current situation, at least for him, is it brought up an old trauma that needed attention. And, and so he was given it attention by talking to me about it. Okay, so, so if you have that kind of awareness and something shows up, Sometimes you have to go back and work with an event. Sometimes you have to go back and readjust your autobiographical narrative about some aspect of yourself, second stage. Sometimes you need to recognize I have a, I somehow developed a new uh, negative habit of consciousness, and I need to develop a positive habit of consciousness to include and transcend that negative yeah. habit. And then that's, that's the fourth stage. And all these stages are always operating, at least in psychotherapy, while helping people have better relationships with other people, do better self-care physiologically, um, do better interior uh, self-care in terms of understanding themselves, and um, to be have a felt sense of spirituality, that, which are constant themes. And so these are the stages that you tend to go through. And you'll notice in the first stage, you really want to focus on the trauma. But in the third stage, you want to focus away from it on a preferable state. And mm -hmm. so there's different principles. That's so interesting. And that's so good. Yeah. I wish I had known this, you know, oh, in my 20s. Me too. Would have saved me a lot of trouble. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I, in my 20s, I kept looking. I, I, had, I had drunk the Kool-Aid to a certain extent. I thought there has to be a psychotherapeutic system that's powerful enough. that You can just go with somebody's distress. You can just go into the session with them enact this system and they will they will be healed yeah and i'd studied system after system after system Me too. Put them together and, I, and then i went into Taoist healing and studied that more and more intrusive systems essentially and finally when i did my doctoral dissertation my doctoral dissertation was a study on on various effects and it showed that all the systems seemed to work equally and and as i began to to consider that i thought you know it's not about it's not about it's not like you have a cut and you heal it. It's about you develop a certain consciousness that now includes the fact that injuries happen and I need to take responsibility for them and turn them into resilience. And then I need to normalize that. And as I normalize that, I'm still going to feel bad, but I'm not going to feel bad as much or as deeply. And I'm not going to feel bad about feeling bad. And I'm not going to feel bad about feeling bad. You know, that's, and then I feel guilty about feeling bad for feeling, feeling bad. You know, you know, by the end of the cascade, I'm on the couch. <laughs> and so, yeah. it, it, that's, it, it's, it's, 
So get off the couch. Get off the you couch. Know? Now, weirdly, when, when you give up, and, and this is shifting from self-authoring mind to self-transforming mind in Robert Kagan's um, uh, understanding, which is very practical and useful. Mm-hmm. Self-transforming mind is you maintain the processes of your life. You stay open to that bottom-up into intuitive stuff. And, you, and, you, and you, you, you go where your spirit directs you in terms of service and relationship and self-care and so on. Um, and, it, and new things happen, mostly good things. Um, yeah. I, it's, yeah. It's, it's, no, it's I, think, exciting. I think that's true. You know, I think that growth wants to be good, true, and beautiful yeah. if you let it. Yeah. You know, and... And if not, it's happy to be ugly and brutal and, you know, full of lies. But uh, it would prefer to be good, true, and beautiful. And once we learn how to do that, um, it's going to be some smooth sailing, buddy. Yes, it is. And, you know, I remember Don Beck saying, uh, life circumstances produces worldviews. You know, of course, this is up now because there's a war going on, okay? And what that means is that to people in, the, in those circumstances, everything is going to have to shift into survival, protecting yourself and your family. Everything gets more primitive. Um, and so... Hard to watch. I mean, is, you know, and to know what's happening. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's inspiring in a way to see, to see the West responding. If, if that can happen, if, if economic constraints can actually stop a war what does that say about the modern world exactly what does it say if that can't work and so i see that stuff and i know that there's a flood of trauma now happening there and war war trauma is one of the worst traumas of course they studied they studied veterans brains every time a, a, a veteran was deployed when they came back there was more damage to their brain the frontal cortex, which involved in self-awareness and self-regulation, was more shut down. The occipital cortex that has to do with sensory stuff was more hyper, hyperactivated. And the amygdala, which has to do with uh, uh, emotional arousal, was more hyperactive. And every time back from a deployment, those brains were in worse shape. There's something about being in an environment where, where consciousness is trying to kill or injure consciousness that just degrades us. And it wasn't just the people on the front line that had this. The cooks had it. You know, the, pe- the airplane oh. mechanics had it. It was just being in the culture of violence yeah. that did this yeah. to humans. We're so sensitive to that. Yeah. Well, and if you look at human history, that was the, the, the stuff of life. Yeah. I mean, it, and it wasn't just going off to war. It was every day. And, um, and of course, wars were... Um, and mandatory. Yeah, and, uh, you know, so the human, uh, human history is traumatic. I mean, just oh, God. there's really, you know, hard to describe it another way. There's, uh, you know, growth happening and there's, you know, goodness, truth, and beauty. But Jesus Christ, it is brutal. Okay, so if we took chimpanzees, we, we genetically engineered them so that they could think, speak, and shoot a machine gun. Okay, and then we gave them all AK-47s and taught them how to use it. For the next hundred years or so, they'd just shoot the shit out of each other and everything would go to hell. But gradually, the survivors would begin to, to form alliances and go, I just don't want to spend my day shooting the yeah. shit out of other chimpanzees. Well, yeah. I think we're going to do something different. And we would see the spiral begin to reassert itself. That's yeah. what consciousness yeah. does. But it goes through that barbaric state. And, yeah. you know, once you got one person in charge, like Putin, we got now a European dictator that is unilaterally starting a land war in, in Europe, just like Hitler and Stalin did. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Boy, I'm sorry to bring up a bummer. <laughs> no, I, I did an episode on it today, actually. Um, okay. It's, um, you know, part of it is that um, our, the sensitized mind is uh, online on the, on the planet in a way that it never has been before. That's right. And that's actually something to be happy about in, in the sense that we'll see what this awakened sensitized mind or sensitive mind at least yeah um does with this and if it makes any difference it's it will make a difference 
it will it will happen like it, if it does not if it doesn't turn into some nuclear weirdness um which of course is the the, the, the catastrophic possibility that is now uh, uh more possible than it was a mm -hmm. month ago yeah if it doesn't turn into that we'll see already th there's way more consciousness being brought to, to bear yeah. on this thing oh, than was brought to bear on hitler that was brought to bear um on it's it, it's very similar you know i go back to the first bush and feel a certain amount of, of affection for him <laughs> no yeah, he was mean, he was mean to my aunt Dorothy once, so I was all I was all prejudiced against him. Oh, really? Yeah, she he and she she's a federal judge. He and she shared a taxi. He was somehow somehow a dick to her, but you know maybe he was <laughs> having a bad day. But you know the way that he dealt with Kuwait, you know he said no and he stopped at the border. That he respected Saddam Hussein's border because there was a part of him that was smart enough. You know, he used to be the head of the CIA. Yeah, that was an enlightened response that he had his son didn't obviously have it right that was an enlightened response with him and it really worked well yeah. Yeah. in terms of you know as kuwait and, and iraq of course were still fascist dictatorships essentially but it essentially kept the peace going in the world because the rest of the world saw hmm, mm -hmm. the united states is not going to let people take territory and they're not going to turn it into a, into creating an empire for themselves they're just going to say no yeah and and I look back at that, and and I think that was somewhat of a genius response of him. Yeah, no, that's to, to right. Situation, and you know, I don't know how he figured it out, but I think it, I think it probably kept other people from invading, at yeah. least for another 10, 20 years. So that time's up now. You know, the end of the post World War era, in in a way. I mean, whether it's a break or a breakdown, I think it's probably a break, and I think actually the world will reconstitute stronger uh, and I can't imagine this is going to go well for Putin you know one of the things about your perspective around history which is one of the reasons I like listening to the daily evolver and why we have these talks is that there is a lot of ugly stuff happening all over the place and there is a rise of authoritarianism and populism and so on but you've always felt both intuitively and directly the integral awakening that's also happening around this planet yeah you know the the the, the expanding consciousness and i i feel it too and I, I don't get distracted as much by my anger you know partly because of talking to jeff oh um, that's good you, you really helped me with that happy to and help. i i feel like that under that underpinning that that uh, of of that awakening coming into the inner awakening you know, at some point there'll be a transfer, and it might happen off of this thing. I don't know, and it might not. It may happen off of global degradation. It might, it might not. But at some point, we're going to look around. We're going to see a world that's cooperating and caring, yeah. and and thinking in a way that 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 the humanity has never done before. Yeah. Oh. And it'll happen gradually. But yeah, I, I suspect you and I will be having a conversation five or ten years from now, and we're going, you know. It's happening. Yeah. You know, we've been predicting it for 20 years, Keith. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I, I have faith in that. I don't know how quick. I don't know if I will get there with you, as Martin Luther King said. But I feel it coming. Well, just yeah. keep eating your vitamins and maybe stem, <laughs> maybe stem cells will give us an extra 10 years. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right, we good. Anything else on the trauma, Keith, that you would no, have, you know, lay on that's the table? Good. I mean, there's good stuff, man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important for all of us. It's important to normalize it. I'm I'm, I'm really um, glad to share it. Yeah, um, I think give it's us the, you know the key four steps one more time, just to sure. Narrow. Okay, trauma is a form of memory. Yep. You know, trauma memory, you get more sensitized, which is bad. Resilience is you get less sensitized, more resilient, which yep. is good. Um, there's four stages. The first stage is, is, is recognizing that trauma is intruding in the present moment, facing yep. it. Yep. I'm learning about it, learning how to, to experience it, remember it, and, and, and know it without getting lost in distressed feeling. Sometimes yep. it involves healing, also healing a damaged brain. The second stage is readjusting your autobiographical narrative so that your traumatic events that the learning fits into a larger narrative of you navigating yourself um, into a life worth living. 
The third stage involves, I've done the work and now I need to choose states that are, that are pro-life states. This is especially important with depression. Um, depression teaches us to have a negative, uh, pessimistic explanatory style, negative worldview and all that other stuff. If we become aware of that with the witness, we can choose states of more positive explanatory styles. We can choose more realistic. We can choose contact rather than isolation. We can make those choices. So the third stage is you, is you feel that that drive to get lost in a negative thought, belief, or action. Instead, you choose a positive one. And then the fourth stage is cultivating the witness so that when you need to go back to any one of those two stages, you don't curse fate. You just go, okay, I got to go back to that stage. And you go back and you do the work and you keep on moving towards unity with God. Keith, you're so smart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was Thank great. You. Fantastic. I received that with pleasure. Thank yes, you. Yes, indeed.